0: And then also measuring the greenhouse gas footprint of food is one of the more challenging fields. In say the energy or transportation sector, we've got the kilowatt hours, we've got the liters or gallons of gasoline, and you can calculate the emissions based on that. In agriculture, it's a living dynamic system. And so it's very complicated to determine what are all of those inputs and outputs.
1: Good day, everyone, and welcome to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere. I'm joined today by my co host, Brian Gutner. Brian, good day. Good day, Jeff. It's always great to be here. Brian, so this theme in, uh, in our season is around decarbonization closer to home, and nothing really gets closer to home than the food we eat. And so I'm very excited about our guest on this episode. Our guest is Marcy Baransky. She's a program management officer in the United Nations Environmental Program Office. Fundamentally, Marcy is an interdisciplinary scientist where she focuses on, and I love this, climate smart rice projects. Marcy has a PhD in biology from Arizona State University, and prior to joining the United Nations, uh, she worked in both the public and private sectors, focusing on greenhouse gas emissions and greenhouse gas accounting. Marcy, welcome to Cutting Carbon.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We are thrilled to have you here today. So Marcy, I want to start with the million dollar question. Why is agriculture so important when we talk about climate change?
0: Yeah, agriculture is important because it's really unique among the sectors in that it's both a large contributor of greenhouse gas emissions and it's very impacted at at really a primary level by climate change. So it's both a cause and an effect, unfortunately.
2: Marcy, can you maybe expand on that? I tend to think of living plants as things that absorb carbon. They're good. They're a sink for carbon. Help break it down for us. In what ways does it actually contribute to greenhouse gas emissions?
0: Yeah, so there's two broad categories of the role of agriculture in climate change. One, we can call the direct emissions, that's biochemical processes that are actually happening on the field, such as fertilizers breaking down into nitrous oxide, which is a powerful greenhouse gas. We have methane emissions coming from ruminant animals and liquid manure mostly, also methane coming from rice. And then we have the broad category of what you might call indirect emissions, and those are mostly actually carbon dioxide coming from the expansion of agriculture land into forests, grasslands and peatlands. And so carbon for carbon, that's one of the biggest impacts of agriculture is the deforestation or land use change, as we call it which releases that carbon dioxide that's been stored in the vegetation and in the soil. So while it's called those indirect emissions and they're often categorized as this vague land use change, that's one of the, the biggest impacts. So we have those indirect carbon dioxide emissions and we have those direct, mostly non-carbon dioxide, mostly those other greenhouse gases of nitrous oxide and methane And so we often are using the term carbon emissions to refer generally to all of these three gases and their roles in agriculture. And then on the impact side, there are, of course, many ways that the climate impacts agriculture. And I mean, if you just go out and talk to a farmer about the weather, you know, that's going to be one of the most important factors in their their day to day business. So weather is the short game and, and climate is the long game. And so things like the changing rainfall patterns, changing temperature patterns, um, we're already seeing a lot of those impacts in the United States and around the world. And then you also in some areas, such as in, in South and Southeast Asia, you have things like saltwater intrusion from rising sea levels. And just also, also impacts of things like forest fires, those can also have an impact on For example you know the grapes that were grown in that season can't be made into wine so you have some of those more niche impacts also
1: so marcy i've got both a a note for our listeners and a follow-up when we talk about ruminant animals want to make it clear right cows sheep other animals that are kind of eating a lot of grass and having a natural methane emission as a byproduct of their digestive process now you talked about land use, which I think is so important, but I know a, a lot of people will go to, when they think about greenhouse gases in agriculture, well, my food is coming from halfway across the country or around the world. What's the CO2 emission or, or greenhouse gas footprint from what's it, the use of fossil fuels in our agricultural ecosystem? Is it a large component or small compared to some of the other direct and indirect causes you described?
0: Yeah, I would say that fuel that's used for, say, transportation of field or farm equipment, it's probably going to be about less than 10 percent of the overall carbon footprint. Now, one thing to keep in mind is it just kind of depends how you slice it. If you're including, for example, the emissions it takes to produce fertilizer And ship that fertilizer, that might increase it a little bit. So, in agriculture, one of the reasons that you hear a lot of different statistics about the impact of agriculture, it's about where you draw the boundary and what kind of accounting system you use, basically. But overall, the way that the food is produced has more of an impact than say how far it's traveled, generally.
1: And the other thing I did want to bring up again, just thinking about context, I love your description of it's one of the only. I'll use the phrase sector, but it's one of the only elements where it's both impacted by and impacts climate change. But if we think about it purely in just the greenhouse gas emissions, depending on whose study you look at, agriculture as a sector is a non-trivial amount of greenhouse gas emissions. It might be the second or third largest sector, depending on whose study you've looked at and and how they've sliced it. So it's it's a non-trivial amount of the greenhouse gas emissions that as as a global society we admit every year.
0: That's exactly right. It's about a quarter. That's kind of what the studies seem to be narrowing in on is about a quarter if you're including those land use changes. But in terms of these non-CO2 gases of nitrous oxide and methane, which they're more powerful than carbon dioxide, but they have a shorter atmospheric lifespan. So they're more like a pulse And what that means, though, if we can reduce them, we see a more immediate impact. And agriculture is a large, if not the dominant contributor to those gases of nitrous oxide and methane. And so that is mostly what you will hear people talking about when they talk about mitigation measures in agriculture is working on reducing those um, methane and nitrous oxide emissions. But it's always important to keep that long game of the carbon dioxide from land use as one of the main goals also.
2: So, Marcy, we spend a lot of time on on this podcast talking about technologies that are available to help mitigate or reduce some of the carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions that contribute to climate change. Agriculture and farming has been around for millions of years. Are there technologies that you're excited about that can be deployed here, or does it simply come down to the choices of the types of food and, and decisions around agriculture? How do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I would say, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet technology in agriculture. There's not a a tube you can put in the middle of a field that collects all the methane or the nitrous oxide. And usually in agriculture, there's some sort of trade-off. So these mitigation practices require usually increased labor, time, or capital, which are all in short supply on the farm level. But on a societal level... I think behavioral change is one of the main levers, and you'll see that in some of the reports from the UN and the IPCC. So both on the consumer and the producer level, you need those things such as a shift in diets to lower meat and dairy, basically more plant-based diets, a reduction in food loss and waste, and also improving livestock management have been identified as three behavioral changes that can really impact the methane emissions. And then on on the fertilizer side, obviously fertilizer management. So there are a lot of interesting technologies there, such as just applying nitrogen to the crop when and where it needs it. I think the, the big innovations are going to come in terms of that more precise management on the field, but that alone is not enough. You also need these broader shifts in in the supply chains, in diets, and in policies, too. That's the big thing, is that a lot of our agricultural subsidies around the world are going toward these less sustainable crops, as crops that are more resource-intense and have more emissions.
1: You're listening to Cutting Carbon, If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, please check out our show notes. And if you like what you hear, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go back to the conversation. Marcy, you mentioned food waste. And, you know, I know it goes on in my household, but I think you're talking about food waste on a much bigger scale. Can you give us some insight You mentioned that has an element to contributing to the sector's greenhouse gas emissions. Can you elaborate on that a little more?
0: Yeah, it's food waste along the entire, we can say, supply chain, right, from from farm to fork. So it's food waste at the point where, well, um, even crop loss. So going back to the impacts of climate change, a lot of crops are lost because of weather impacts. So using these climate smart practices, as we say, to make crops and livestock more resilient, that's number one. In countries that we have projects like Myanmar, there's unfortunately a lot of post-harvest waste. So that means Once the crops already collected, unfortunately, there's not the right resources or infrastructure to protect that harvest from things like weather or pests. So that's a big one, too. But at the end, at the, the grocery store, the restaurant, the consumer level, there is, yeah, quite a bit of food waste that goes on there too. So all of them really, there are some hot spots, you could say, but really the whole supply chain, we need to reduce the, the waste there. And, you know, not only do you have methane coming from the breakdown of the organic matter in landfills or compost, but it's all of the resources that goes into making that food that is wasted. And so if you can reduce that, that really makes a big impact.
2: Marcy, when you think about both the waste across the entire supply chain, as you think about it, and on top of that, you compound the, the transportation and delivery costs and the emissions that come in that, is buying local always lower greenhouse gas emissions or are there other factors at
0: yeah, actually, buying local is a choice that you maybe are making to support local farmers. However, from the greenhouse gas perspective, what matters more is the, the practices that were used at the place of production rather than how far the food is actually traveled. So, It actually would (laughs) it feels weird saying this, but yeah, it would be better to buy apples from New Zealand that were grown in some sort of organic or biodynamic farm rather than apples grown in a really resource intensive system, maybe like even a greenhouse. That's a big misconception is that greenhouses have lower emissions, but greenhouses actually can have higher emissions because there's a lot of energy that goes into that greenhouse. So It's a personal preference, obviously, right? There's other reasons, and and that's what makes agriculture so, so tricky, is that people have a lot of values and cultural values around food. There's not always one right answer. What could be best for local economy is maybe not best for greenhouse gas emissions.
2: And I imagine that makes it challenging for the consumer who may, in very good intent, want to make decisions that are having a positive impact on the environment. And as much as we may have all kinds of nutritional information on food, we may not always know its carbon footprint all the way back through its supply or, or what type of fertilizers were being used, et cetera. Is there anything from, a, from kind of a policy or public awareness standpoint that you see changing on that to enable consumers to be more knowledgeable in this area?
0: Yeah, actually, I just saw something, I don't know if it was in the U.K. or the E.U., that there is now a voluntary standard to report the carbon footprint of foods. And I have started seeing that now. I know corn, the alternative plant-based meat or fungus-based non-meat product that they have been labeling the carbon footprint of their products. And I do think that that's going to become more common as consumers really start to value that as a metric. And then also, you know, measuring the greenhouse gas footprint of food is one of the more challenging fields in, say, the energy or transportation sector. We've got the kilowatt hours. We've got the liters or gallons of gasoline. And you can calculate the emissions based on that. In agriculture, it's it's a living dynamic system. And so it's very complicated to determine what are all of those inputs and outputs? There's a lot of modeling, but one of the innovations that we are seeing is more use of remote sensing, in particular, new methane satellites coming out. And so I think with some of that, as that technology matures, we will probably see more and more reporting of the carbon footprint of foods.
1: Marcy, you had mentioned livestock, and we talked about the emissions from livestock, but livestock is also a very, to some degree, energy-intensive and land-intensive diet. So I've had discussions with members of my family, and for a variety of reasons, uh, we do use plant-based substitutes, not for for every meat meal, but on occasion. Other than the individual choice a family might make or an individual might make to occasionally switch from a hamburger to a a plant-based equivalent, is there anything that the industry, you know, as Brian said, are there any new technologies there, or is it really based on, on consumer choice?
0: There are definitely technologies that are both currently available or that are being currently researched to reduce the emissions of livestock. Now, one that's gotten a lot of attention is seaweed as a dietary additive for livestock. So Burger King, they they had a big advertising um, campaign about that. So, you know, seaweed, it makes the cows a little bit less burpy. But all in all, the research is still ongoing there. Again, there's not a silver bullet. And a lot of these studies of the feed additives for livestock, they're based in very carefully controlled conditions when in reality you have these cows you know going in and out of the field so you you can't be a hundred percent controlling their diet now on the other end of the cow the manure side we do have technologies so basically the drier the manure the less methane that it's emitting and um, in fact if manure can be, Spread out and use even as a substitute for these commercially produced fertilizers, the synthetic fertilizers, then that's a win win. But the problem is that manure is difficult to deal with. It takes special machinery to dry it out. You know, if you just have too many cows, it's just not possible to compost everything. So that's why in these concentrated animal operations with pork and dairy, you're usually dealing with liquid manure. It's it's sitting in ponds and creating methane from that anaerobic bacteria. So one solution there is to use what's called an anaerobic digester, or um, in other countries called a, a biogas plant or a biodigester. And so that is taking that manure and putting it in a vat and then capturing the methane from that. And then you can further process it and use it even as fuel. There are a lot of challenges of doing that in the U.S. However, there are a few hundred of those in the U.S., When you look to Europe, though, that's more like a few thousand. So it's just an infrastructure challenge, I think, in the U.S., but there are some technological solutions there in livestock. But the main thing, again, with the land use is that a lot of this deforestation is being driven by increasing demand for animal products. And so without addressing that fundamentally, that's still going to be occurring
1: So Marcy, I want to go back to the work you're doing at the UN. So we talked about Climate Smart Rice Projects. So the title itself is just so intriguing. But before we dive into the projects aspect, maybe a primer for our listeners. Why is rice so important as a dietary element or part of our agricultural system? What's the importance societally?
0: Yeah, rice is a staple food, really a large portion of the diet for about 3.5 billion people around the world. So primarily it is a major source of calories for a lot of the people living on this planet. But unfortunately, rice cultivation is a leading driver of habitat loss in wetlands and forests. It also uses one-third of the world's fresh water. So it's it's a huge source of calories and nutrition for some people, but it's got a really big environmental footprint. And when those rice paddies are flooded, which is the traditional way of growing it, bacteria then are producing methane. And that produces about 8% of the global methane emissions are coming from rice.
2: So what alternatives are there, Marcy? I'm guessing there are some ways uh, in which we could maybe grow rice in a more sustainable fashion. Can you expand on that?
0: Well. The first thing would be you could shift from rice to other crops that are less water intensive. So under climate change, it may be something that's not even proactive, but more of a reactive. In some of these regions where water supply is becoming less reliable, there will be shifts from rice to crops that that need less water. Um, But that also could be a win-win because there could be more nutrient-dense crops or, you know, from the farmer's perspective, perhaps more valuable crops that they could be growing. The second thing would be to increase the productivity and reduce the loss of rice in the field and at the harvesting stage um, all the way to the consumer. So that's what a lot of organizations like the Food and Agriculture Organization, the International Rice Research Institute, they're really working on, on that aspect of it, is if you can make rice production more efficient and with less loss, then you're getting more bang for your buck. That is not just in rice, but in all of agriculture, including livestock, increasing the productivity is really gonna help not necessarily reduce emissions, but produce more food with a lower ratio of emissions. And then the last thing that we're really working on at the UN Environment Program, it's a practice called alternate wetting and drying. So it's actually very low technology. It's just not constantly flooding the field, letting it actually dry out a few times during the growing season. And the very simple technology there is just sticking a perforated pipe into the ground so that you can actually measure the water level. There are some ways that you can make it higher technologies, such as using sensors or using satellite data to measure the water levels. But this practice can reduce methane emissions by up to 50%, in some cases even more, and also reduce the water use by about 15 to 30%. So it's really um, a promising strategy for places that are growing a lot of rice However, there's a lot of challenges. It can only be implemented in places where you can turn that irrigation on and off. And that's not always possible. A lot of irrigation is not coming from groundwater pumps, but is coming from very old systems of canals and dams and sluices and and all of these things, and you often... Are dealing with also each farmer has a very very small um, you know places like Asia having a very very small plot of land so you need all of the farmers to be working together and to agree collectively on the the irrigation practices that will be used.
1: And Marcy, I guess that the the practice of Flooding your field, whether it's done intentionally because you've got a pump or it's from natural sources, there's probably historical context that farmers have been farming rice this way for literally centuries. And now I guess we're trying to get farmers to change their practices over, I don't even know, maybe you could tell us. Like, I have to imagine maybe rice has been farmed this way for thousands of years. And we're trying to change people's culture the way their grandparents farmed rice. And I got to imagine that's tough.
0: Exactly. I often see people forgetting the culture part of the agriculture, and I think that's really important to remember that, you know, farmers, they have a lot of reasons for why they do and and don't do things. The reason primarily that rice fields are flooded is to reduce weeds and pests. So if you take that away, you do sometimes see an increase in weeds and and similarly, at the end of the season, farmers are burning a lot of time, the rice straw, and that's also getting rid of some of the pests and diseases that are in the rice field. Of course, that also has greenhouse gas impacts, but it's part of the culture and makes economic sense to them. So. In agriculture, you know, this question of technology adoption, it's not just influenced by farmers having the right knowledge and the right access to technologies. You really need the social, the technical and the environmental conditions to line up in order for the scaling up of a certain practice or adoption of a certain practice. And in agriculture, it's just very context specific. We could say hyper local so there haven't been a lot of technologies which can be really easily scaled across a large area of land. But that's the challenge here is that, you know, in order to meet the 1.5 degree temperature increase to stay below that, we need to reduce our methane emissions by about half by 2040 and so one of the ways to do that is to address rice methane. And it is one of the relatively low cost solutions. But yeah, there are a lot of cultural, social and economic barriers there in which you need more than just promoting a certain technology. You need political change. You need irrigation improvement, improving farmers, water rights, things like that. So it's, it's always more complicated than you would think it is.
2: Fascinating. Marcy, where do you see the future of sustainable agriculture? What are some of the innovations? You know, I've read about vertical or indoor farming and using LED lights where it can reduce the amount of water maybe that's needed, maybe less fertilizer, but maybe that only has applicability with certain leafy green vegetables, but not everything. What are some of the technologies that you see coming down that could really transform agriculture?
0: I would say. I don't see a single technology that would have the potential to transform agriculture. Unfortunately, I don't see vertical farming as one of those things. It is very energy intensive and well- It can help produce fresh produce in areas that need it and provide economic opportunity in places that need it. I don't really see it as a scalable solution partly because of the massive energy use needed there. I think Some of the innovations that I see coming are really in remote sensing to allow us to better manage fields using more data. Along with that, really financial innovations such as carbon markets for agriculture. There's a few companies in the U.S. that are not using carbon offsets, but what we can say carbon insetting in that they are reducing carbon in their own supply chain. And so using that remote sensing technology to really get a better handle on the supply chain going into their products. So that is one area where I see the big shift. But I think overall, thinking about the supply and the demand and and what are the levers that can be pulled there, supply You have the policy and the technology, which can kind of shape the environment. And then demand coming from consumers, coming from companies, from financial institutions. So I do see both of those shifting. Nothing's moving quickly in agriculture. But I think that some of the the technologies, such as remote sensing and satellite measurement of methane, might be able to shift the needle a little bit on either the the supply and demand side.
1: Fascinating, Marcy, absolutely fascinating. You know, I came into this conversation kind of thinking I knew what we're going to discuss. And, and I've learned just some really amazing things about the carbon footprint of the food that we eat and things that we can do either as individuals or you know, maybe through our policymakers to try and adopt. And I'm really grateful the work that you and the UN and others are doing to address this issue globally. This is not just uh, what happens down the road at my local farm. So thank you so very much. It's been a great conversation.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: So you may recall that during our conversation with Marcy, we had asked the question, when rice farming began? And we didn't have an answer for you. So post-recording, we did a little research. And what we've learned is that rice farming started somewhere between 7,000 and 5,000 BCE. So literally what we're talking about is rice farming has existed for over 7,000 years. Now, during our conversation with Marcy, one of the things we talked about was the cultural aspect of agriculture. And in the case of rice farming, what we're literally talking about is potentially changing thousands of years of farming practice. Again, that's not something that's done overnight, but clearly something that we need to think about doing. So for Brian and the entire Cutting Carbon team, thank you all for joining and listening. If you have any questions for us or our guests, please don't hesitate to drop us a note. You can reach us at cutting.carbon at ge.com. And again, for Brian and the entire team, this is Cutting Carbon.